0: Sun Tzu, the Chinese general, military strategist, writer, and philosopher, is famously quoted as having said, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. There are many ways to learn about one's enemy. This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we discuss the most thorough method with our guest, former United States Air Force Captain Brian
1: McCoy. In the art of warfare, that's been going on as long as there has been warfare. Try to figure out what your enemy capabilities are, what he might try to do, and how you can counter it. And uh, obviously, getting a hold of their hardware is a big step forward in that regard. Welcome. To the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio
2: show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 73. I am your host, Jello, and good news, Boat is back to help us out as co-host this week. What's up, Boat?
3: Hey, how's it going, Jello? It's good to be back.
0: Great. What's new in your world? Last time we talked to you, or were thinking about moving soon.
3: Uh, same deal. Just working through the process.
0: Okay. Outstanding. Well, let's see. Uh, the F117 episode was a big hit last week. We had many votes for best ever. I don't know if it was the story at the end or just Robson in general, but <laughs> I thought it was a really great show.
3: It was absolutely awesome. Yeah, I learned a ton. I had no idea had the air-to-air capability. And uh, obviously that was a, a surprise for many folks uh, based on the comments that I saw. So yeah, it was a good time.
0: Well, on that note, two big questions came out from listeners in various capacities, social media, email, wherever. One was that There was reasons it's still flying, and I believe there was an article. What can you tell me about why it's still flying?
3: Yeah, so obviously that's a big highlight for people that uh, aren't aware. And so uh, from the article in the Tampa Bay Defense Alliance, it talks about them being placed in Type One Thousand storage. And so from the article, I'll just read that just so that we have that clear. But it's an official Air Force statement. That says, since its retirement from active flying status in 2008, the Air Force's cadre of F-117 Nighthawks have been maintained at their original climate-friendly hangars at the Tonopah Test Range Airport in Nevada, and per congressional direction within the uh, Fiscal Year 2007 National Defense Authorization Act, the aircraft were placed in Type 1000 flyable storage for potential recall to future service. In order to confirm the effectiveness of the flyable storage program, some of the F-117 aircraft are occasionally flown. So essentially, it's just making sure that the program, the Type 1000 storage program, is working as it's supposed to, and that they're ready if they needed to call those things back into duty.
0: Okay. Well, as you and I are recording this towards the end of February, just last week, I had a chance to go out and visit the aerospace maintenance and regeneration group amarg at davis monthan air force base in tucson and that episode will be coming up uh, probably in early april and we do talk about the different types of storage 1000 2000 etc and so yeah the 1000 i guess is hey this is as ready as we can get and so they're not out there uh, doing red air apparently or any other super secret stuff they're just flying because it's part of the upkeep for sure and then the other one was, well, hey, if it's not carrying the Sparrow, what type of air to air missiles did it carry? Uh, and in fact, we have a listener question about this, so let's play that.
1: Hi, Joe. My name is Varun. I'm an airman uh, serving in the uh, California International National Guard. I had a question about the F 117 episode. He mentioned the F 117 had air to air capabilities. And I don't know if I missed it, but I want to know what exactly was the air to air weapon of choice that it could carry to take down an AWACS? Was it just an AIM-7 Sparrow? I don't think it would be considering that. I don't think the F-117 had a radar. Was it the AIM-9 or could it be a special missile that we all don't know about? Thanks. Have a great day. All right, Bo,
0: so I put this back to Robson, and he said, Yes, they carry two AIM 9s, nothing else, you know, super squirrely secret. Of course, AMRAM weren't out at the time. Yep. Uh, and Robson goes on to say, Weapons were carried internally, each weapon bay had a trapezi, trapeze, I guess. Anyway, the weapons, whether it was AIM 9s GBU-10s, 12s, 27s, or whatever, was attached to the trapeze by the ground crew. The sequence was the bay doors opened, the trapeze was lowered into the slipstream, and then the weapon was released or fired, and then it was retracted, all in about three seconds. And that reminds me of what Stretch said on our F-22 episode. I think it's very similar for that aircraft.
3: Yeah, they kind of camp themselves out into the airstream and fire off, and, and off they go. So yeah, it's pretty similar.
0: Well, that's good. And again, uh, glad everyone enjoyed the F-117. We'll see if we can get Robson back on the show. Yeah, he was awesome. In other announcements, your wait is over, boat. people have been asking, as far as this being the Fighter Pilot Podcast, why on earth have we not covered the F-15 Eagle? And it's because we've been trying to get all the ducks lined up, and it looks like we have it. So we're announcing that March will be F-15 month. We'll have our regular schedule and the regular flow of the episodes, but we will uh, play the F-15 in two parts and then we'll follow up with F-15 Strike Eagle on the third episode. And I just recorded that yesterday. I think it's going to be a really fun time learning all about the F-15. Sounds great. Excellent. Also, air show season is almost here. Thunderbirds did their flyover, as they always do, of the Daytona 500. And the Blue Angels will open their show season with the show at their winter home, El Centro, Southern California. And I and some team members will be out at that on March 14th, 2020. So if you are in Southern California or Southwestern Arizona, come on over and check it out. We'll be posting updates on where we are. Or you can just look for the couple guys with the Fighter Pilot Podcast polos. Not that big of a show. You'll probably bump into us, and if you do, hopefully we'll have some gee-dunk to give out, and we'll just say hello. But it should be really good, and it's the start for us of a busier air show season. We're looking at possibly setting up some booths and attending other air shows throughout the year. So, Boat, if we can find one near you, we're going to have to try to drag you out there as well.
3: Well, actually, in my uh, current capacity working at uh, NORAD in Colorado Springs, I'm going to be attending a few uh, non military centric air shows. Uh, first is going to be the Fun and Sun Air Show in Lakeland, Florida, coming at the uh, end of March, being in April. And then uh, I'll be out at Oshkosh the end of July as well.
0: Yeah, I think we talked about that last time you were here. And that sounds awesome. I'd love to get to Oshkosh. I don't know if this is the year or not, but we'll definitely have to uh, see if we can coordinate our schedules and cross paths a little bit there. So good stuff.
3: Definitely. Definitely. Yeah.
0: All right. Boat, how about some listener questions today, bud? Yeah, sounds good. All right, so this first one I've been sitting on for a long time. It's a phone call. Let's play it. Hey, Jello. I'm John from South Florida, and my questions are about the F-18 Hornet and Super Hornet wings. My first question is, does the Hornet Super Hornet have an ancestral slight ancestral wing design, or is that just my eyes playing tricks on me? And my second and third
1: questions Does the F-15 have a symmetrical airfoil, or is it considered more of a variable geometry airfoil because the camber of the wing can be changed by the flight control system moving uh, up and down the leading edge flat and the ailerons? My third question is, are the flats and ailerons and the leading edge flats hinged differently
2: on the Hornet than they are the Super Hornet? It looks that way in video and pictures, at
3: least to my untrained eye. Thank you, and have a good day.
0: All right, so John from South Florida, thanks for the question and your patience. Because we lost our former co-host who had the test pilot background, I actually put this to the Boeing company, and they were kind enough to respond. And so with regards to your questions, does it have an anhedral or is it your eyes playing tricks on you? They tell me that the Super Hornet has three degrees of anhedral, which is about minus three degrees of dihedral, depending on which way you want to look at it. Whether it is variable geometry or not, they said the Super Hornet wing has no camber and is considered a symmetrical airfoil. The leading and trailing edge flaps provide variable camber for optimizing lift and drag for changing flight conditions. And then finally, the leading edge flap, trailing edge flap, and ailerons are hinged similarly on the Hornet as compared to the Super Hornet. Very good question. All right, Boat, let me put an email to you. This is from Dan Nedlinger. Who asks, if you could resurrect any one dead individual involved with aviation, military or otherwise, to record a podcast episode with, who would it be? It doesn't have to be a pilot. It could be an engineer, an inventor, a tactician, etc. So what do you think?
3: You know, one of the things that's always interested me has just been the creation or the invention or however you want to label it of uh, powered flight. So I would pick, I guess I'm limited to one, so I'll pick Orville, right? But I'll probably try to get his brother on there as well and kind of just go (laughs) through that initial first flight process and kind of what that experience was like and everything. I thought that's really fascinating. I've been out there to Kitty Hawk and have seen everything, but uh, I'd love to have a chat with those guys. That'd be really, really awesome.
0: Uh, No doubt. Yeah, that's cool. I've not been out to Kitty Hawk. I'd like to do that. So yeah, I think this is such an intriguing question, because there's so many mammoths in aviation, and certainly those guys are among them. Dan, I don't know. I think Boat took a good one. I would say Pappy Boyington would be a good one, although he's pretty well documented. You know, Eric Hartman from World War II. Uh, you've got guys from World War I. Even those two guys, I f- can't think of their names, but the very first recorded dogfight boat was two Americans who were basically mercenaries in the Spanish-Mexican War, and they were just flying around in old biplanes shooting at each other with pistols. <laughs> that, would be, <laughs> that would be pretty interesting. That would be. But I think if I really had to narrow it down, even though we haven't done an episode on him yet, I'm kind of torn. It'd either be Robin Olds uh, or John Boyd. And both of those guys, big Air Force names, uh, very instrumental in the Vietnam era with both tactics and design. And uh, I think either one of them would be amazing to get on the show.
3: Yeah, the Boyd book is one of my favorites for sure.
0: Yeah, I'd need to read it again. It's been several years. And Christina Olds, uh, Robin's daughter, is out making the rounds, carrying on his legacy. And I think at some point we need to get her on the show. So we'll see if we can do that. Absolutely. All right, next, let's take another phone call.
1: Hi, hello, this is uh, Elliot from Israel. Which Air Force is the best Air Force? Not by volume wise, but if you were to take their top 100
0: pilots and planes, put them up to any other Air Force's top 100 pilots and
1: planes, which Air Force would be the best in that? Thank you very much. Very appreciated. Bye-bye.
0: All right, but we're getting some deep questions today. Which Air Force would be the best if you took the top 100 pilots and planes, sort of like an all-star game? I have to guess uh, what you're going to say here, Bo.
3: <laughs> I guess I'm kind of biased, but um, you know, I think this is obviously a very artificial situation and scenario, and I guess you take the best 100 pilots and planes over over the course of time. And I'm going to say the United States has the best, but obviously uh, Israel is pretty well known for its Air Force and uh, its pilots. Any one pilot could beat any other pilot on any good day, so who knows? But uh, I'm going to say uh, overarching of the, uh, the United States Air Force is going to be my top pick for you. Uh, what about you, Jello?
0: Well, of course, I've got to be uh, true to my alma mater as well, so I, I guess it depends on what you want the Air Force to do, but of course the Navy and the Marine Corps are pretty capable as well. Arguably, the F-22, I you know know you there's not even a hundred of those, but yeah, if you were to really carve out your force there boat, I'm guessing you'd take pretty much all of those and then a handful of 15s and 16s. For me, I mean, it's not necessarily the best at any one of those, but a smattering of Super Hornets and Hornets and F-14s and all the guys who've got uh, several hundred traps on boats, I think they're going to be uh, on carriers, I should say, are going to be pretty capable as well. But yes, like you said, the Indians have gotten better. The Israelis certainly uh, battle-tested and there's a lot of them out there. But yeah, it's just an interesting question. I appreciate that, Elliot. All right. Last question then for today. This is from Brian. I think we heard from him last week from Rootstown. He says, are dumb bombs obsolete? Are there any advantage for using dumb bombs over smart bombs besides that they're cheaper? What do you think about?
3: I don't think dumb bombs are, are really ever obsolete. I think you have to look at what you're trying to accomplish because obviously besides the cheaper argument, a smart bomb just may not be the right tool. So you have to look at it from what's the purpose of the device. So in this case, a dumb bomb. I can remember flying around in Iraq uh, at various points. They'd change the weapons on the aircraft. And depending on what they're trying to accomplish, we'd actually just use a dumb concrete bomb that was there to avoid extra collateral damage when trying to strike individual buildings in tight spaces. And so using the blunt force as opposed to an explosive, you're able to accomplish the job without... You know, damaging anything of the surrounding area. So it really comes down to what's the purpose of it. And you look at weapons over time, there are lots of weapons that have kind of been taken out of the arsenal, but not forgotten. They're just not used full, useful excuse me, during that conflict because that tool just isn't the right one for the job.
0: Yeah, I agree. And if for whatever reason, either weather or tactics drive you to low altitude tactics, then the good old, you know, 500 pound bomb with the retarding fins, you don't need a necessarily laser or GPS kit on that. You can still get down in the sling mud that way, as well as the B-52. I mean, Even as recently as Desert Storm, just dropping hundreds of bombs can be demoralizing. They don't necessarily have to be precisely planned, although there is a spot for that, certainly. So yeah, yeah, I think they'll be around for a long time because they're just very simple and affordable. Not always what you want, but still a place for them, I would say. Definitely. All right, that will do it for questions for this week. Boat, any thoughts before we get to the interview today?
3: You know, so I've read both of the books that have been written about the Red Eagles and getting to hear it in person or over the audio as a completely different experience it's very amazing to uh, consider the fact that all of this stuff was kept hush hush for so long and kind of really only recently came out from behind uh, the shadows if you will so yeah it was an awesome interview and uh, i enjoyed listening to the stories and kind of the behind the scenes if you will that the books didn't cover so it was great
0: all right well let's let brian mccoy take it away On the phone today from North Charleston, South Carolina, is former United States Air Force Captain Brian McCoy, call sign LASMO. Brian, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, How are you feeling? I'm great. Yeah, life is good here. And uh, we're going to talk about some pretty interesting things today. In fact, I think we may have to keep our voices down, Brian. But (laughs) anyway, (laughs) we'll get to that in just a second. Tell us about you real quick. Where are you from? What did you do in the Air Force? And what have you been doing lately?
1: Well, I'm from the upper Midwest, a uh, big farm family. Left there about as quickly as I could, joined the Air Force, and uh, made my way to uh, college and, uh, in the central Florida, and then uh, on to pilot training. Managed to do well enough there to earn an F-15 assignment out of school. Okay. And uh, went to Holloman and flew with the uh, black sheep there. Was able to earn a uh, invitation by the aggressors to join them when my time at Holloman came to an end, and uh, flew with the aggressors for about three years, and then raised my hand to uh, take part in another program that was very uh, hush-hush at the time, mm-hmm. but has since been declassified. Uh, I flew uh, as bandit number 53 with the Forty Four Seventy Seventh uh, Red Eagles in a project called Constant Peg.
0: Okay, and that's going to be the uh, bulk of our discussion today, but we'll come back to that in a little bit. So you did that for a while, and then what?
1: Well, then uh, they shut the program down rather abruptly and uh, tried to uh, wrangle a good assignment, and it just wasn't going to happen. And uh, a few things going on in a personal life, so I decided to uh, exit the Air Force, and promptly got hired by Delta Airlines and flew with them for quite a number of years. Okay. Just uh, retired. And what keeps you busy these days? My wife and I operate a small business, basically package deliveries, and um, basically deliver anything that someone will uh, pay us to uh, take somewhere. And uh, that keeps us pretty busy uh, most of the time. Okay. When I have a few uh, free moments, I play ice hockey with my son, I kind of like to say that he plays hockey. I just slide around a little bit.
0: Okay. Now, you did say Holloman earlier. I don't know if that's come up on the show before, but we all recognize that as being in New Mexico. You sent me a little background on your family. You've got quite the pedigree here, both up your own
1: side of the family and down, but also on your wife's side. A lot of military members, huh? Yeah, there's probably 10 or 12 or maybe more of us. Kind of the family (laughs) business, I guess.
0: Well, you're not from the McCoys like the Hatfield and McCoys, are you?
1: Well, there was a uh, expert in the field of uh, genetics that we talked to once. He said there are so few McCoys that it's impossible for us not to be related.
0: <laughs> well, I hear they still get together, those two families, but uh, it's a little more cordial these days than it was uh, yeah, back in the day. All right, Brian. Well, again, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time. We're going to talk today about Constant Peg, and I was making a joke about keeping our voice down earlier because, as you said, at the time, it was very classified. And, of course, that's kind of a nebulous thing to say. But in other words, it was at the highest tiers of classification, but has since been declassified. And of course, a lot of people who listen to this are going to draw conclusions about, okay, well, they stopped this back in the 80s, but what's going on today? And I think for the record, you and I are going to mostly just talk about constant
1: peg. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Not read in on any of the programs going on since I left.
0: If any are going on at all, right?
1: That's correct. That's total speculation.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Well, on the show, we have, in fact, just even recently, we had an episode about air-to-air mission planning. And our guest, bus went into some of the discussion and considerations that are required to build a winning air-to-air timeline. And you were an F-15 guy, Lasmos, you remember, right? You need to be able to do everything with your aircraft to employ and affect them before their weapons affect you. And I'm mindful of the Sun Tzu quote, you know, he talks about knowing yourself and knowing the enemy. And I think we do a pretty good job in the United States and our allies of knowing ourselves, but it's really important to know the enemy. And there's different ways that we can do that. What can you tell us about the different ways we get information on our adversaries? There's a couple of ways I'm thinking of.
1: Well, there are several methods, actually. Probably the best is uh, human intel, human Mm -hmm. That's just face-to-face interaction or observation, close up. We also gather information via signals, Mm signant. that radar returns when happen to be close enough or uh, radio information that uh, is intercepted and uh, can be uh, deciphered. I had an opportunity when uh, the uh, Berlin Wall was still up to uh, visit a facility in Berlin that was quite exceptional in terms of its capabilities. (laughs) A big sponge, was it? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. They did some real-time deciphering of, uh, radio calls and, uh, we're able to, uh, determine what was going on right in any particular segment of the airspace.
0: Sure. So we have different ways of collecting things. And like you said, one can be people who are there and can give reports. Another is we can intercept the various things floating around in the airwaves. Another is, as I understand it, is just looking at pictures and just saying, Hmm, if the wing is this shape, let's just talk airplanes for today, Right, and the aircraft is this long, then I bet it can go this fast. And we have smart people that can just give us information or intel based on
1: photographs. Absolutely. They can do a very good assessment. I think they tend to uh, overstate the case. <laughs> In some cases, a couple of airplanes that I think of were given a little bit more capability than the uh, actual jet truly possessed. But... uh They do a pretty good job overall of uh, assessing capabilities just off a grainy photograph. And
0: sometimes that's all you have. Yeah. So it's better than nothing.
1: And satellites. uh, Oh, yeah, sure. Satellites also uh, provide uh, tremendous uh, intelligence Mm -hmm. when they are able to be uh, utilized.
0: Right. And of course, we have aircraft that are designed for collections flying in international airspace and other ways of, uh, which we don't want to delve too much into in the show. But what I was building towards is there's nothing quite like getting your hands on the actual aircraft, is there? Uh, Absolutely not. So we had a chance to do that in Constant Peg, but that was just the one we'll talk about today. But isn't exploitation, I mean, I have to think this is pretty much as old as warfare itself, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. You mentioned the uh, know your enemy and uh, in the art of warfare, that's been going on as long as there has been warfare. Try to figure out what your enemy capabilities are, what uh, he might try to do and how you can counter it. Right. And uh, obviously getting a hold of their hardware is a big step forward in that regard.
0: Well, and it goes both ways because I know from the little research I did before but then of course leading up to this interview that there was i believe an early aim 9 sidewinder that was sticking out of the side of a mig-17 that didn't explode back in the late 50s that they then landed and and took it out and and reverse engineered it and that became the i believe aa2 atoll missile that's correct and then when we abandoned uh basically, South Vietnam in the early 70s, we left behind a lot of F-5 at the time, freedom fighters, which were taken into the Soviet Union and flown. I think Uh, there's evidence of them actually flying them in Soviet colors and getting what they could from. So I think this goes on both sides of any time you have any adversaries that are trying to get the advantage on the other.
1: Absolutely true. Unfortunately, we hear stories of people selling secrets to other countries that as an example, I guess of human again.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so Constant Peg. I mean, what can you tell us about this? First off, what aircraft were involved with this program?
1: Well, I mentioned that I was Bandit Number Fifty Three, so I was not one of the very early guys. I showed up to Constant Peg in uh, January of nineteen eighty-six. The aircraft uh, we had at that point were the Mig Twenty One F Thirteen Fishbed and the uh, MiG-23 flogger. Okay. There were a couple different uh, versions of the flogger, and also a couple different versions of the fishbed that we operated. So you weren't one of the early
0: fellows on the program, and I believe, didn't one of the early fellows, or maybe the command officer, write a book about this?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, Gaylord Peck wrote a book. He was uh, fundamental in the uh, forming of the uh, Constant Peg program. Okay. In fact... His wife's name is Peg, and that's part of why uh, the name got its name.
0: Okay. All right. So by the time you showed up, this was pretty well established. But when you got there, what was kind of the point of the program? What was your participation in it?
1: Well, by the time I showed up, the airplane had been uh, fully uh, exploited in uh, many different uh, phases And uh, we pretty much knew what the airplane was capable of and uh, what it wasn't capable of. So our emphasis was in showing the aircraft to uh, frontline Blue Force pilots and just give them the opportunity to be there right next to it and see it live and get the opportunity to watch what it can do and what it can't do and we would demonstrate some of the uh, different capabilities it had. Right. That was really the uh, biggest uh, function of our whole mission was just to show them the airplane, play a little bit of airborne show and tell.
0: Gotcha. Because we can go out and fight, you know, in a modern age in my F-18, I would go out and fight against F-5s or F-16s, but there's obviously nothing like fighting against the real aircraft.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the whole idea was to give... uh, The young guys, the opportunity to see the airplane up close and personal to kind of get over that buck fever feeling Mm -hmm. that you have, because you've studied this airplane, you've thought about it, you've anticipated uh, what it would be like to see it, and then to actually see it as kind of a holy cow moment (laughs) that uh, you can't prepare for it. You really need to see it. I remember the first time I did, it was just jaw-dropping.
0: No, I can imagine. And so the idea is we, you know, it's as close to, you know, the Super Bowl was just played not too long ago. And, uh, you know, folks will hear this a little later, but the point is there's nothing like the real game, but in practice, they try everything they can to get ready for it. They even pipe in crowd noise, you know, they'll have the lights a certain way. And so the idea is the, you know, sweat and training. So you don't bleed in combat. And and if you see the real thing, it just makes it that much easier.
1: Well, I think the basic mindset of everybody up there was to fly the aircraft to the extent of its capabilities to the best of our ability to make sure that if this pilot you're working with ever sees this thing in combat, that beating the guy they meet is going to be easy compared to the guys back at Constant Peg.
0: Uh Very good. All right. So let's take a step back, even though you weren't there at the beginning, do you happen to know how these assets were acquired in the first
1: place? Or is that still protected? No, I don't, I don't believe it is protected. It's in a couple of different books. Okay. They were acquired from uh, different sources. Our friends in the Middle East provided some aircraft that were basically given to them by uh, defectors. Okay. Uh, They in turn uh, let us have them. Some of the other airplanes came from former uh, Soviet client states, particularly in the uh, South Pacific, where they were beginning to turn to uh, Western uh, sources of hardware. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had some uh, maintenance guys that looked down over a ravine and saw just uh, a junkyard of uh, MiG-21s laying there. And they said, (laughs) "Uh, what are you planning to do with these? So they made some kind of trade and brought, uh, oh, a dozen or so old fish beds. And from that scrap heap, they were able to put about three together that could fly.
0: Wow. And I think that's, you know, each... Situation is obviously unique, but that's, I think, indicative of how these things happen, because I remember when United States Allied Forces entered into Iraq in early 2003, I remember seeing pictures of them uncovering buried MiG-25s. Like you said, there are defections. And then I forget when it was probably around when the Iron Curtain fell. The United States bought something like 21 Moldovan MiG-29s simply because they didn't want them to get sold to someone else and then be flown against us. And of course, who knows what happened to all those aircraft? One can only speculate. But the point being is you figure out a way to get your hands on a couple of these because the value is just so great. But you can't just have one. You've got to have a couple and you have to have a bunch of spare parts because we don't have the supply system to fly these like we do
1: in F-15. Correct. Okay. That was some of the more carefully protected uh information regarding the program is where the parts were coming from,
0: sure, and I assume you guys maybe i well maybe not I don't know I mean, did you burn through parts pretty quickly or was it how would you compare it uh, we're getting ahead a little here, but how would you compare it to the f fifteen in as far as going through parts and different components?
1: Well, it depends on the airplane you're speaking of the uh mig twenty one was relatively simple and uh was not difficult to maintain. It was pretty rugged. It was uh, designed in the first place to take off from unprepared fields, climb quickly to altitude, accelerate to high speed, run down B-52s. It was very rugged and uh, really didn't need a lot of maintenance other than the standard things that you got to do for an airplane. The uh, MiG-23 was an entirely different ball of wax it had uh, quite a bit of uh maintenance uh issues the uh, tolerances within the engines were very close they used to tell us this is like the highest development of the turbojet engine and the tolerances were very close wow if uh, the aircraft was subjected to any yaw moment then most likely the uh, engine blades would uh contact the engine casing And an overhaul would be uh, required.
0: And that's a single-engine fighter, by the way. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't have to tell you, but I mean, just for the point of view of, okay, so you need to be careful of these. Plus, we don't have that many. Right. Okay. It's worth mentioning, I think, that you said you were in the program in the mid-'80s. So, you know, the MiG-29 was just coming out. The SU-27 was on the horizon. But this was the MiG-21. Correct. One of, if not the most proliferated fighter in history— flown by almost all of our adversaries and widely proliferated, something like over 11,000 of these
1: made. Those are the ones that we know about (laughs) somewhere over 11,000, either built in the Soviet union or there were some licensed built in uh, China. Sure. And uh, some not licensed built there. Uh India, I think also uh, put a bunch together uh, for their program. So yeah, it's a very prolific aircraft. Mm -hmm. And uh, needs to be considered in any, uh, even today, they're still Mach 2 capable uh, fighter.
0: Well, and they're upgrading avionics. So you've got a proven platform with a nice suite for the pilot. And yeah, still capable.
1: Very much so. It had some very interesting little capabilities that people don't recognize when they look at the airplane.
0: Okay. Well, we'll get into that in just a bit. First, how were you selected and how were pilots in general selected for the program back then?
1: Well, the uh, first uh, phase of, the pro- of being selected was obviously to volunteer. You also had to have at least 1,000 hours of fighter time under your belt. And I remember when I had my interview, my uh, entry interview with the operations officer, he uh, turned to me and said, you know, this 1,000-hour requirement, is, it's a hard requirement And as of this morning, you had (laughs) 1,013. So they were tracking it pretty close. But there were only three tracks of uh, fighter pilots that uh, need apply. You had to be either a former Top Gun instructor, a Fighter Weapons School graduate, or a former aggressor.
0: So basically, the Top Gun and also the Air Force equivalent, you had to be an instructor from there or a graduate of the Fighter Weapons and then aggressors. So the idea of aggressors are these are guys who already have some experience flying Western jets, but in a threat role.
1: Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, we spent a lot of time in the aggressor corps trying to think, act, and fly like the uh, threat, right? whether it be Soviet or Middle East or whoever.
0: Now, did they also, if you remember, make a big deal out of depending on where your family was from or any relatives. So for example, my mother who immigrated to this country from Denmark in the sixties, sailed right by the statue of Liberty, the whole experience. She did not become a citizen until right at the end of my career. And, you know, we still joke about it, but every time I was up for a renewal of my security clearance, there was always all, you know, tell me about this uh, Danish person. Like, well, it's my mother. (laughs) And, you know, but all are her relatives and which were my relatives. And so, you know, Denmark, obviously no threat, but did they look at that? Do you recall, was it an issue if you were married to someone from another country or anything like that?
1: I'm sure it would have been, it was necessary for a pretty high security clearance to participate in the program. Right. Uh, When I was uh, selected, uh, I didn't actually have the high enough security clearance. So they had to, run through the process of uh, making that happen. In doing that background check, they're going to uncover things like that, that they'll uh, oh yeah, perhaps focus in on and ask a few more questions.
0: Right. And then they'll maybe even call up references of yours and have meetings. I've, Lord knows, had plenty of interviews for other people who have had their clearances upgraded or whatever. And Hey, you know, wh- how would you judge his character? Have you ever seen him do anything suspicious, et cetera? So yeah, they really do put some miles on to get these clearances because this is important stuff. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, throw
1: your name in the hat. It's a bit of a process. No. And you actually went through a a more protracted process than I actually covered. The uh, operations officer was the first interview you had and really most important. If he liked you, you were pretty much in. Okay. Uh, But you also had to speak to the wing commander who was a uh, brigadier general and also the Nellis TIFWIC center commander, who uh, was a two star. Those were kind of rubber stamping, but they could have shut you off too. Sure.
0: Well, and it's partly for the applicant to know that, Hey, this is serious. So you're going to go see some high ranking folks.
1: Yeah. And, okay. uh, also you had to show up day one before any of those interviews and you had to have a good reputation as a fighter pilot. Sure. If you, uh, they didn't think you knew what you were doing in the air, you wouldn't, uh, get through the door.
0: Well, and that's the point of having a 1,000 hours, right? It's kind of a one-size-fits-all requirement that most guys by then should be proficient. Some get it earlier, some get it later, standard bell curve type thing. But with a 1,000 hours, the idea is you're not new anymore. You've seen at least a deployment, maybe two. You've probably had an emergency or two. So you're not a spring chicken, I guess.
1: That's right. And it took a fair amount of uh, maturing to be able to do what, what we did. Sure and maintain the right attitude about it. And I guess we'll get into that a little bit later.
0: Yeah. So for example, when you picked up F-15s out of flight school, which was an honor itself because so many guys end up as FAPEs, as we've talked about on the show, first assignment instructor pilot. But there was, I think you said two F-15 slots. You grabbed one of them. So when that happens, you go to a designated squadron and you learn all about the F-15. But when you're going off to do constant peg, I have to think there's not, quite the infrastructure that exists there because there's maybe not simulators and instructors and books, or if there are books, there's in maybe the wrong language. I mean, what was the
1: training like? Yeah, that was an interesting phase. Uh, okay. when I was uh, initially selected, as I mentioned, I had to wait for a while to get my clearance upgraded. And until I did, I didn't go what we called North, uh, which is uprange for the actual operating, uh, Right. North was.
0: from the reference point being Nellis in Nellis. Las Vegas. Okay.
1: Yes. So I spent uh, a couple weeks, at least maybe a month taking a, uh, classified document over to the, uh, classified, uh, petting zoo at, uh, Nellis air force base <laughs> where they had a, uh, mig 21 on display. And okay. I just go up, op- uh, sit in the cockpit, open the, uh, This book that had been written, I guess, by pilots that tried to translate from Russian, I believe, to uh, put it in English, so we had something to go by, because otherwise it was just pointy talky, and uh, (laughs) you fell back to the old: uh, if a switch is shiny, you might want to know what it does,
0: because it's been used a lot to
1: it being dull gray.
0: Okay. So the Petting Zoo, uh, just a name for basically what most folks would think of as an aviation museum where you can walk around and look at things, but protected because there's a bit more information and maybe certain things you might not otherwise see in Dayton or some of the other famous uh, museums, huh? Right. So once you were cleared to go, then what
1: happened? Well, then kind of fell into the daily routine, which is uh, we showed up at uh, our building on uh, Nellis, which was kind of away from all the other fancy fighter squadrons with their desert landscaping and uh, earth tone paint jobs. Mm -hmm. We had a World War II barracks. I don't know if there's even a squadron sign out front. Mm -hmm. It just screamed, go away. There's nothing (laughs) to see here. Anyway, we'd uh, pile in there about 5.30 in the morning, every morning, scrounge around a little bit, uh, get some coffee, and then... uh, we would head over to base ops and uh, crawl into C uh, C-12 aircraft that would fly us up to the operating location. And it would take uh, most days two C-12s to take us all up there. So this is an
0: austere location. And so if folks didn't live there. You had to commute, basically.
1: Well, uh, that's actually kind of uh, a misnomer. We commuted for a specific reason, and that was so that we could come back every evening and have a face-to-face debrief with the guys that we flew with.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Our maintainers did not commute every day. Gotcha. They uh, had a pretty nice facility up, uh, up range where they stayed through the week, and they'd come home on the weekends.
0: Okay. Well, the more austere location away from any civil-type amenities, I guess the better they have to make what you have. So I'm sure they uh, did it upright for those guys. Okay. All right, so you'd go up in the morning, come back in the night, and um, when you first got there, you went up to do your training on site. What was that like?
1: Well, that uh, was a little better than just sitting uh, with a book in my lap, guessing. Mm-hmm. I had an instructor, and we'd just uh, go out to an airplane and sit, and he'd point out things that uh, he knew about, and uh, I could ask questions of anything that occurred to me. And uh, it was pretty much, you know, as you mentioned, there's no simulator there's no formalized uh, briefing uh, where you go from slide to slide to right. be shown what, uh, what is going on. You just pick it up as you uh, encounter it.
0: Well, and the older guys are going to point it out to the new guys, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah. Just lead them around and uh, show them what they need to, need to know. Fairly early on in the program, they uh, had us uh, go out and do an engine start. And uh, just going through that process was quite uh, educational. And I remember my instructor, I'm sitting in the cockpit. My instructor's got his head in from a ladder that's been pushed up to the side. Mm -hmm. And the crew chief has his head uh, in, uh, you know, I can't really see anything. I got these two guys in front of me (laughs) and I'm trying to uh, see what's happening. But that was the beginning of my education about who really owns the airplane. Yeah. The crew chief would uh, let us take it out every now and then and fly it, but it was his jet.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And there was, I'm guessing, no two-seat versions of these three MiG-21s that you had?
1: No, we had uh, only single-seaters.
0: Okay. So you started up on one event, and then I'm guessing maybe on the next event, you might go taxi around a little bit?
1: Yes. Taxiing was quite a challenge in the airplane. Really? The brakes were. Air powered with uh, compressed air, and uh, there were no tow brakes. It was uh, just a single handle on the side of the stick that looked like it had been pulled off a 10 speed somewhere. And <laughs> you pulled that, and it would uh, port air to the uh, main brake system. Wow. The nose wheel castered, it would do a 360. Oh, gosh. There was n- absolutely nothing to prevent it from doing that and the only way to actually steer the airplane was to have some momentum, and then uh, you could depress the rudder pedal in the direction you wanted to turn and then hit the brakes, and that would pull you around. So <laughs> the first couple times you go taxiing it, uh, your call sign was zigzag for obvious reasons. <laughs> well, like you said, on-the-job training, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. As you got a little more proficient with it, And confident with taxiing the airplane, you learned that if you got it going about 30 knots, the rudder was very effective, and you didn't need to use a brakes to steer. You just use a rudder.
0: Did it have a drag chute as well? We're getting ahead a little bit, but when you landed?
1: Okay. The Chinese version of the airplanes that we had had uh, factory-installed drag chutes. The earlier Soviet uh, design, they found a place uh, near the rear of the airplane to pack a parachute, So we had drag chutes in all of them.
0: Okay, which helps. I'm guessing no arresting hook for the long-field barrier.
1: Actually, there was uh, substantial uh, arresting gear. Oh. Uh, I can't remember the designation of it now, but it was uh, kind of a Navy-style barrier. You mean at the field or on the airplane? Well, we did not have a tail hook. Okay. It was basically a cable system with straps that would... uh, capture the airplane. And they said it had been tested with an F-14.
0: Almost like the barricade on the carrier.
1: Yeah, exactly the same.
0: So it engulfs the airplane and keeps it from going off the runway or flipping upside down or anything. Okay, They don't go
1: four-wheeling very well.
0: All right. I hope nobody ever
1: had to try that. No, but we used it. uh, It was always raised at the departure end of the runway.
0: All right. So what was your first flight like? That must have been pretty interesting to
1: line up uh, in position there and... Well, I was flying one of the old Soviet birds, and it has kind of a Rube Goldberg ejection system. When you pull the handle, a 57-millimeter mortar shell goes off, and it kicks you out, and it brings a canopy with you. With all this going on, you had to provide additional clearance between the top of your head and the canopy, or part of your head might not be there when you're all done. Not optimal? No. So you had to sit about six inches below where you would normally sit. And the airplane's got a pretty high canopy rail anyway. Mm -hmm. So I go blasting off down the runway thinking, uh, boy, this is kind of cool. And I get to uh, rotation speed and pull the nose up, and the whole world went away. And I just, uh, that's about as close to being panicked in an airplane as I've ever been. Because all of a sudden, I just feel like I'm in this cave. And I'm trying to fly it. Now I'm airborne, I got, and there is nobody to help me. i got to land this thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what happened? Well, what happened is uh, the first thing you do is you climb out, clean up, and uh, climb to uh, 10,000 feet over the field and uh, fly a simulated flame-out pattern. Mm-hmm. So you come back around maneuver a little bit and get lined up with the runway. Right. And uh, then you go around from that. And uh, my chase pilot, who is my instructor, said that was the first radio call I made was when I asked to go around, (laughs) (laughs) even though I should have made several prior to that.
0: Okay. Well, you were overcome by events,
1: I think sounds like. Oh, yeah. All right. I was about two miles behind the airplane.
0: Well, and again, this is why there's not brand new pilots flying these things. So what, a couple flights down and you're King Kong in this thing?
1: Nah, it it takes a while. The airplane (laughs) is uh, very alien in its appearance, in uh, some of the systems, and uh, some of the ways that it interacts with the pilot. The man-machine interaction in the old Soviet birds was, the whole thing was kind of a Rube Goldberg Mm. operation, trying to uh, stash an American pilot into a Soviet jet. Very little of the instrumentation was not factory-installed. We had a radio, of course, a transponder, an altimeter, an airspeed indicator. That's about it. Everything else was... Day VFR, huh? Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. The uh, attitude indicator worked backwards from what you're used to. Uh, you're used to the airplane as bolted to the floor and it moves around the world. In the Soviet airplane, uh, it's just exactly the opposite. Oh, so geez. they said, thou shalt not fly in clouds.
0: Yeah, I would and think not,
1: For obvious reasons, it uh, might fall back to your experience.
0: Sure. And that's one nice thing about the Nevada desert is it's generally pretty good weather, although you can get some afternoon thunderstorms. But I imagine you guys looked at that pretty closely.
1: We stayed at clear clouds for the most part. There were thunderstorms sometimes that uh, affected us we didn't want to stray too far. Another requirement was that we always stay within visual contact of the uh, airfield Oh. so we could navigate ourselves back that way.
0: And you said you had a chase pilot that was in your instructor. Was he also in an asset or was he in something else? He was in a T-38. Okay. So you guys were dual-qualified? Yes. And I'm guessing by then you'd had enough experience in that in flight school that it wasn't too big a deal to jump in that?
1: Oh, not at all. That was uh, like old home week to jump in a T-38. (laughs) Great. Jump in, push buttons, throw the throttle up and drop the flaps and away you go.
0: All right. Well, so let's shift gears a little bit real quick, Brian. We talked about your training and certainly that's important because you're the one that can ball this thing up if you do it wrong. But there's another half of this equation or maybe more than half, which are the folks on the ground. And frankly, they can cause you to ball it up if they don't do their jobs. But this again, like the pilot training is not something they're going to get in their basic training early on in uh, their Air Force careers. How do those guys get picked and how do they learn
1: about keeping these things going? The um, maintenance guys were all handpicked. I'm not sure how, frankly, they went about convincing somebody to come on out to the desert, you know, you'll, (laughs) we got great vending machines. Yeah. Yeah. Spend all week (laughs) up range. And then, you know, you'll see your family on the weekends and you'll do this cool stuff that you can't tell anyone about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's all secret, man. The uh, maintenance guys were just phenomenal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they were handpicked and they, uh, all knew what they were doing. Obviously they had to, uh, adapt their experience, uh, for the job at hand mm-hmm. because, uh, turning a wrench on an F-16 is not the same as turning a wrench on a MiG-21. Right. But, uh, airplanes are kind of airplanes at a certain level and, uh, they all do pretty much the same things. They might, uh, go about it a little bit differently, but... These guys were just top-notch. They could have built an airplane.
0: Oh, I bet. Yeah. So again, just like for the pilots, they're taking seasoned guys who have seen a lot of repairs and maybe even crash damage or whatever, but they know their stuff. And to your point, a hydraulic system, while it might be slightly different, it's still based on you know, fluid dynamics. And so they probably can figure out, oh, okay, this must do that. And then to your point, they probably can replace things or fabricate something or do whatever it takes, huh?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. They could, uh, fabricate, uh, parts if they didn't have them, uh, readily available. So it was important uh, to have skilled people. And that's what we had. They were, they were awesome.
0: Of the three, and let's just stick with the MiG-21 for now of the three, how many were generally flyable at a time? Were they typically being worked on or
1: were they up? How was that? They were pretty much up. The MiG-21 again was pretty simple, I don't remember the exact numbers, in the neighborhood of 14 airframes. Probably at any given time, we could have flown 10. And the other the others were maybe getting painted or uh, having some uh, major maintenance performed that uh, took them out of the cycle for a while. Oh. But again, a very simple airplane, and uh, they were pretty much up.
0: I might have took out of context something you said earlier. So you, at some point, you had over a dozen of these MiG-21s? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So you had a whole squadron's worth.
1: (laughs) Yeah. We had uh, quite a few airplanes. They were all in pretty good uh, commission rates. Okay. So we had a lot of jets to fly.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good thing. And let's get into that because you spoke earlier about, you know, the show and tell, but what would be a typical mission? I imagine you're supporting red flag. Like you said, you stay close to home as far as seeing the base, but what was a typical mission like?
1: We had several different uh, mission types that we flew. The uh, first one, the show and tell mission, was called the performance profile. That's where generally two adversaries, and we called our the guys we were playing with. We called them the adversaries. Okay. They would come up and uh, join up close and put them on each side of the airplane, and just uh, I'd go through a discussion of uh, here's what my flaps look like here is, uh, speed brakes being deployed. Uh, once you stack down low and I'll tell you when I lose sight and, uh, ease back and I'll tell you when I lose sight and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So they could gain an appreciation for just how difficult it is to see out of that thing. Hmm. And, uh, you know, he had to do all this without calling a spade a spade. Cause you, 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 you know, you say, you oh, know, this damn mig is doing what it does. You can't, Really say that on the radio, uh, because then you're uh, uh, broadcasting what you're doing. And our covers were the MiG-21 was the F5. Okay. And uh, we'd use that as a cover story. And we'd go through uh, an acceleration exercise where we'd start at 300 knots, ready, ready, burners now. And just accelerate uh, out to uh, five or 600 knots or until it is pretty obvious uh, who's winning the race. Mm Mm-hmm. Then I would uh, put somebody in trail and tell him to just follow me around this turn and keep your nose in lag because my turn's going to get much smaller here in just a moment. Hmm. And I'd uh, give him a good 5G turn, and the airplane loses about one knot per every degree of turn. So turn radius is a function of airspeed as much as anything else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the uh, turn radius would shrink uh, substantially, and I'd keep it going till usually about 250 knots, and then I'd start the nose up and uh, show him uh, what it can do when you get down really slow to 100 knots or so, and just do a hammerhead stall, coming right back down the the same air I just disturbed going up, and I'd try to do that with both uh, adversaries, so they both got a good chance to see what uh, the jet could do, mm-hmm. and usually by that time I was out of gas. Ah. It didn't carry much, did it? It didn't carry much at all. I flew the airplane 287 times and logged 134.5 hours.
0: Uh, That's like less than a half hour each. Yep. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. So you're out there doing kind of the dog and pony show for the u.s air force or navy or marine corps or whoever but the, the good guys that you're calling the adversaries so we have to be careful not to get ourselves too tied up but the idea is that they can see it in these different things see the performance and just become more familiar it takes things they've learned in the book and now it, it puts it in practical real life experiences
1: yes okay and uh, that was probably our most important mission uh the performance profile mm-hmm. following that it, once they had a performance uh Profile with us, we could uh, take them out on a BFM mission. Ah. We were always defensive. We put them on the offensive perch uh, generally at uh, 8 o'clock or 4 o'clock and uh, eh, about 9,000 feet out, Mm -hmm. 400 knots on each jet, about 20,000 feet, ready, ready, fights on. And then uh, just take it from there and see what happens. Gotcha. So
0: using, just real quick, an analogy of a clock face, if your MiG-21 is at the center, the fulcrum, if you will, not the mix aircraft, then the fighter would be over, like you said, at the 8 o'clock, but you're both heading in the same direction. So let's say you're both heading up or at 12 o'clock. And then at the fight's on, the blue, in this case, uh, or the American fighter, has an advantage based on the position relative to you.
1: Absolutely correct.
0: All right, and so the idea was then to observe how the MiG-21 fought when you start off in an offensive position. How did that normally go for, well, for you or for them? I mean, I guess it's obviously connected, but how would that usually turn out?
1: We uh, had an in-briefing for everybody when they came in and gave uh, an academic session of just how to attack that uh, particular aircraft. And we'd tell them, don't crawl in the phone booth with him. And generally speaking, guys about two-thirds of the time would listen to what we had preached and stay at arm's length away from us. Let us go ahead and dissipate our energy and slow down and let that, uh, magical, uh, reducing turn radius happen. And then just lob in, uh, uh ordinance of their choice. Uh, once we were completely out of energy, they could, uh, taxi in and, and gun you if they wanted to Okay, it became less and less you could do about it. So about two thirds of the time that they would, do that there was always a certain number that wanted to go where they were told not to go just to see what would happen okay and those fights usually got pretty interesting they'd crawl into the phone booth with you and and we did pretty well in that arena really uh yeah surprisingly so if they would uh maneuver in a little bit close and have uh, too many angles built up Mm -hmm. the mig could uh trap them in lag, and uh, force them around uh, to where they're kind of in a left situation with you, mm-hmm. and still maintain enough nose authority. Even though your airspeed is silly slow, under 100 knots, you can still crank the nose up pretty uh, substantially, and the rudder's fully affected. Wow! And it was a surprisingly capable jet once it got into that slow-speed arena.
0: Well, considering it goes over Mach 2, usually that is a trade-off you'll see in fighter designs, particularly fighters that are now 70 years old, I guess about 30 at the time. But to have both of those is pretty impressive. Let me ask you, what would you have as a simulated loadout? Were you guns only, or did you have an IR capability? Well, we didn't
1: actually have a a gun camera that operated, Okay. uh, so we couldn't document our shots. But we would uh, simulate ATOLs and uh, guns. Just based on nose position, effectively, correct.
0: Okay, so did you ever do that? Was you said defensive perch? Did you ever swap roles and let the blue fighter try to fight his way off with a Mig twenty one that shows up all of a sudden at his eight or four o'clocks?
1: Uh, yes, uh, on occasion we'd we'd uh, go offensive. Sometimes because of fuel considerations, there was one fight against an F fifteen fighter weapons school instructor. Where we were at the end of range time, and I didn't have much gas left, and uh, we could start a fight, but it wasn't gonna go very long. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was out front, so we just uh, <laughs> went from there. That three, two, one fight's on, huh? Yeah, it was about it. I think I had 300 knots, and uh, he probably had a little more. We both learned something in that particular fight he uh, was probably in mill power. So he uh, went into a slicing turn and gave me a considerable amount of vertical turning room mm-hmm. when we were going to hit the merge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were far enough apart that there was actually going to be a merge. And as he came uh, about to pass my 3.9 line, I just rolled my jet inverted through the flaps out and pulled the stick all the way back knowing that I couldn't stall it and I, I wasn't going to go out of control. So I just uh, asked it to do everything it could. Mm-hmm. He had given me about a thousand feet of uh, vertical turning room. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did a split ass in about 1200 feet. Oh my gosh. Wow. It just shocked the hell out of both of us. <laughs> but it was a function of the airspeed I was at and yeah. uh, kind of a low power setting. I was yeah. at a mill also.
0: I have to think, Brian, you learn something on every flight in that airplane. I mean, is that, uh, certainly pilots are famous for saying, you know, you're you're never so experienced that you've learned it all, but especially in short flights, limited time, I have to think almost every flight was uh, eye-opener in some regard.
1: Oh, yeah. There was no downtime. (laughs) You'd take off and climb right into the airspace, which was right overhead the airfield, basically, Mm -hmm. or within just a very few miles. So uh, Okay. There wasn't any time to sit and reflect and stare out the window (laughs) and think about, you know, cutting the grass or whatever. (laughs) Um, You were busy yeah, getting ready to fight or fighting uh, or getting back home again.
0: Sure. So we were talking about the different kinds of missions. And so you had the performance profile. You would occasionally do BFM. I have to think once in a while they would just use you guys as part of the red package for, you know, red flag or something
1: yes we uh we also did some d a c t packages uh okay dissimilar air combat we try to mix it up with a mig twenty one and a mig twenty three on a two v two mission ah. against uh our adversaries and uh try to show them the uh, capabilities of the two different airplanes Those never worked we always got spanked it was uh, <laughs> it was just carnage
0: yeah so again, I'll try to do this without getting tongue tied It's good if you lose right. Yes. Okay. So that means our tactics are working, our aircraft, are superior, our pilots are, they know what they're doing. So, okay. For you, though, I mean, it, once in a while, you don't always like losing, but I suppose if you can program yourself to say, okay, that's good for them, and maybe just find satisfaction somehow else.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. There was one mission that uh, just frankly broke my heart. I was uh, fighting an F-4, an F-4D hard wing. Mm. And the pilot of this airplane was a very high-time pilot. He had like 2,500 hours of phantom time. Wow. So I thought I was going to get the best fight a phantom can give. And uh, I go into my break turn, and he throws a nose out across the circle, already indicating he's going for a snapshot separation. So I defeated his snapshot and uh, went into an early reversal because he was just telegraphing everything. Mm -hmm. And by the time uh, the reversal was done, he hadn't separated out of gun range. I was accelerating right with him straight down, and he was a 1,000 feet in front of me. (laughs) And uh, as I said, it just broke my heart that this was a reenactment of uh, things that could have gone in uh, Vietnam just a dozen years before.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Which, MIG-21s did come out victorious in some of those engagements. Yeah. Okay, too many true well it 's worth pointing out real quick for the listener that we intend at some point to have an episode about the mig twenty one so i 'm not going to pester you too much, Brian, with talk about the actual mechanics of flying the thing and a lot of the other specifics on it we 'll stick with exploitation and the the different things you did as part of that program, uh, but also that we haven 't really had yet in this audio only format, uh, BFM discussion. So some of these concepts may be foreign. We're still trying to figure out the best way to serve our listeners and viewers. We'll have to turn them into with something in the future, but for right now, we still don't have that. So, okay. So you did uh, DACT and then I'm guessing you did some red flag and then some cats and dogs. Did you guys ever go on the road? I'm, I'm guessing you never went down to Key West or Holloman or anything, huh?
1: No, we didn't take the airplanes anywhere. (laughs) Too many questions. (laughs) Yeah, I Uh, wonder, yeah. We did do red flags. Uh, In fact, our final Constant Peg mission was a red flag sortie where we launched basically everything we could. Oh, cool. And uh, everybody flew, and the boss said, everybody's going to have the same takeoff time, everybody's going to have the same landing time, Mm -hmm. regardless of when you actually land. (laughs) So he was... uh, looking out for us, making sure somebody wasn't going to try to hang it out there just to be the last right. Meg airborne. But uh, we did quite a few red flags. It was more just kind of showing the aircraft. It wasn't really our environment. We had good GCI, mm-hmm. but we were strictly visual pickup. We had no radar that was uh, at all useful. Uh,
0: okay. But for the folks who participated you know, obviously they have to be briefed in, but then they get a chance to, again, wow, there's a real buck, you know, and then you missed your shot, Yep. even though you've been hanging out all day waiting, but so, okay, cool. All right. So let's see, we've talked vaguely about location and unless you think there's anything more we need to talk about there, I think we can leave that. I'm still not sure what we can and can't talk about in that regard.
1: Well, it's not, uh, classified at this point at Tonopah test range airfield, Okay. the extreme Northwest corner of, uh, the Nellis range complex.
0: Okay. So about halfway between Las Vegas and probably Fallon or Reno. Yeah. Okay.
1: Near the city of uh, Tonopah.
0: Right. Which I have to think those folks who live there were probably accustomed to all kinds of crazy things coming and going. Yeah.
1: I would think so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: You know, you touched earlier on it, Brian, because at the very beginning we talked about humant and SIGINT and everything else. So when you guys were flying, right were you using just regular good old VHF or UHF so how do we know that you know do we that folks that lived in Tonopah weren't uh, had their you know receivers up or campers were out there listening to different things i mean do we ever
1: have any evidence that the same thing that we do to others is being done to us that was something that we uh spent quite a bit of time and effort guarding against okay every morning at a stand up briefing they would tell us what time foreign satellites would be overflying our location. Really? And the requirement was that the airplanes are either in the barn or airborne during those overflights. Wow. And sometimes it uh, required you get a little creative to keep the airplane uh, flying long enough to have the cover be over. Mm -hmm. There was also capability with the emergency vehicles to throw an actual tent over The uh, airplane, if somebody was disabled. I remember one time I had a nose tire blow. It was, uh, a cover was coming, so they came out and threw the tent over the top. (laughs) Tonopah was an interesting place. Mm -hmm. They could put more emergency vehicles on the runway than any other base I ever went to. It was nothing to have 25 emergency vehicles, you know, (laughs) when you declared uh, a uh, blown tire. And all those
0: guys have to be brief too, by the way, right?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Everybody's in
0: crazy. Okay.
1: And they had to know a lot of the capabilities of the airplane and Mm -hmm. what to watch out for, what was dangerous on it and what, uh, what it would do on a normal basis. Mm -hmm. So there was an awful lot of, uh, care that had to be given to, uh, who was uh, involved in the program. Right. It got to be a much wider circle than you would normally expect.
0: Oh, I bet. It goes quickly. Well, on that note, I have to think, you know, sometimes, let's face it, I certainly did. I don't know if you ever did in the fleet, but, you know, you go out and you're doing some BFM in an F-18 or an F-15 and, you know, once in a while you make a mistake and let's say you overstress the airplane. Was there any sense of humor? I mean, obviously that's not funny because work has to be done, but was it, look, if you break this thing, you know, expect to come talk to the man or, or how forgiving was it and how often, if at all, did people... Perform buffoonerous acts in these uh, aircraft?
1: Well, Tonopah was a place where the buffoon act was normal. Uh, <laughs> I never over G'd the MiG. I think maybe that was a function of the way I fought it. I would tend to get very slow uh, very quickly. Okay. You can't over G an airplane at 70 knots. <laughs> True. So I don't recall us having many over G problems, particularly with the MiG 21. The 23 was very. Uh, with those uh wing uh pivot boxes. Yeah, cuz it's a swing wing. Yeah. They had some G limits uh, on that thing that uh okay. were real. And they had to be careful.
0: Yeah, no, I imagine. All right, so obviously you guys try to protect your toys the best you can. Did anyone ever have to try the ejection seat?
1: Uh yes. While I was there, I was a life support officer, so the uh egress systems were were my uh baby. Okay. We had a Uh, a MiG-21 that had a single-point electrical failure that failed all the boost pumps on the airplane. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And oh, by the way, when you set up in a glide, the uh, fuel tank is uh, located below the uh, fuel pull-off point, so gravity feed doesn't work, unless you decide to fly inverted. (laughs) So anyway, he uh, he was did everything right and uh, came down and did a flyby past uh, the uh, runway. But our procedures were also wrong as far as lowering the landing gear. And I can't remember now exactly which uh, was supposed to be done first. Either you lower the mains and then blow the nose gear down or vice versa. But he did what was the uh, our known procedure. And it ruptured the, the hydraulic lines, so he was never going to get main gear extension. Uh, and uh, he wound up just doing a nice flyby past the runway and pulled up at the end and uh, ejected. How did he make out physically? He, uh, he did very well. It was one of the uh, Chinese aircraft. They had a very much improved uh, ejection seat. It was uh, uh, rocket-powered and not 57-millimeter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. But uh, he came out, and uh, the only thing that happened to him was one of the straps from the seat came up and hit him in the lip. Oh, ouch. But other than that, he was uh, perfectly fine, walked away from it. All right. <laughs> the jet, uh, not so much. Okay.
0: Well, if it had crashed anywhere else other than in the range, that's what relatively protected. I, I'm guessing, did you have a crew of folks that were to descend on it very rapidly to try to keep things under Cover as best yeah. as possible?
1: There is a large security mm. uh, force there. And uh, again, more people have to be read in. Oh, yeah. They were there really before anybody else got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the rescue folks beat them, but that was about it.
0: Brian, I, I wrote down the word foreign earlier as you were speaking, and I forgot to come back to it. I'll do that now. Foreign satellites. So, was anyone else, and by anyone I mean, we have a couple allied nations that are as close to us as anyone. Did anyone else play in this or did you literally mean any other satellites or just enemy satellites or, you know, who was involved and who did we keep this from? If if I'm not wrapping that up too oddly.
1: The uh, constant peg program was for United States air crews only. If a French satellite flew over, we were undercover. Really? If a Canadian satellite was going over, we were undercover. It was not a program that was uh, open to anybody but Americans. Wow. And in fact, I almost got in trouble. Well, I felt like I was going to be in trouble. Uh, You mentioned road trips. We did have a, uh, we took a road trip with our classified briefings, and I took a classified briefing to Patrick Air Force Base and uh, set up to uh, give a briefing, and it's very clearly air crews only. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a full colonel of uh, intelligence type was sitting in the front row. So it fell to me to go down and ask him to leave uh, <laughs> because he was not an air crew. Did not you were a claims.
0: captain at the time, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> well,
0: that's where a little diplomacy can be useful.
1: Tact? Oh, yeah.
0: Wow. All right. Uh, so, you know, that was in the 80s. I have to think today, uh, and again, we're not going to wax too poetic on what's going on today, but, Goodness, I have to think there's a lot more satellites up there now. you guys almost wouldn't be able to come out
1: yeah that's probably almost true. it some days were worse than others. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we had four or five covers, and sometimes we had six or eight.
0: yeah, Brian, This has been fascinating discussion. We've been at it for already over an hour, but time just seems to fly for your participation in the program, what are some key takeaways in your mind like what did you see as being the the strengths or the uh, the benefits of it and when you went back? Of course, you had a different experience, but for your peers who went back to the fleet, what do you think were some of the takeaways for them as well?
1: Well, I think they gained an entirely new perspective on aircraft capabilities. You look at an F-15, and if you imagine a MiG-21 next to it, there's no comparison as to the capabilities. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you were to start a fight... Line abreast, 2,000 feet apart, slow down to 150 knots, ready, ready, fights on. The MiG would have uh, a pretty good opportunity to win that fight. Wow. I think it uh, gave us an appreciation for uh, BFM, the finer points of it, and uh, the absolutely central theme that came out of it was that it's not the machine. It's the man in it mm-hmm. that really determines uh, how this fight's going to go. Right. The more I fought uh, different types of airplanes, the more I realized that that's absolutely mm-hmm. true.
0: Well, uh, yeah, there are, I think, several famous quotes about that. We used to use one at Top Gun all the time, and so that's true. And I think getting back to the beginning, that is why so much of the collection efforts are about how much are they training do they fly at night do they use night vision goggles uh what type of tactics are we seeing because you can take an airplane and put one person in it a pilot and then uh a different and of course it's very capable but i think to your point earlier you said the idea is that if you fought one of the guys uh in your group and came out okay then you should be okay just about anywhere in the world if you face this aircraft is that true
1: oh absolutely um I kind of had to pinch myself every day there. I uh, wasn't sure how I got there, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) I was walking around with some real titans of air combat uh, capability. These guys were just Uh top-notch. If you made a list of the top 100 fighter pilots in the world, they were all there. I wasn't sure sometimes uh, what I was doing there.
0: Oh, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Brian, this has been... a phenomenal discussion. I want to thank you. Uh, if you're willing, as soon as we say goodbye here in a bit, we'll uh, have you stick around for a quick lightning round with some extra questions. Okay. And then we'll post that for our exclusive audience on Patreon. And they already knew you were coming. So they had a few questions,
1: uh, before we let you go. We always have a couple final questions. What's the future hold? Same, 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 uh, same, same for the most part uh, keep okay. uh, running the small business, uh, keep playing hockey as long as uh, my legs will carry me around <laughs> and, uh, Working a little bit on a manuscript for uh, Bandit 53. Oh, you said
0: that was your call sign earlier. So, what does that mean? What's the manuscript going to be about?
1: About my experience uh, in uh, the project Constant Peg. Oh, perfect.
0: All right. Well, let us know as that continues to percolate through the process, and we'll be happy to promote it here on the show. And then, also, before we let you go, you said that uh, you go by the call sign dead, by
1: the call sign Lasmo. Tell us how you got that. <laughs> That's a good story. All right. I found out uh, as soon as I left pilot training uh, and went to lead in fighter training. It was called at the time lift. Okay. That uh, I wasn't all that good at basic BFM, <laughs> at right. uh, what's called classic BFM. All right. Doing high yo-yos and low yo-yos. Okay, I understand the reasoning, but I just couldn't get the visualization. And I'd do them too late, too big, too small. You know, they were never right. I did them well enough to get through the uh, lift program and then later at F-15 school. When I got to the uh, black sheep and flying F-15s real world, I discovered there's another way to fight and it's using lead, lag and pure pursuit and uh, getting slow. I was a groveler. Mm-hmm. That's hard to say, groveler. So uh, it, very soon nobody would fight me, slow speed because they didn't like how that worked out. It was okay while I was flying the Eagle because it's an incredible airplane. But when I went through uh, aggressor school, I was faced with an airplane that flies more like the T-38. And uh, classic BFM was uh, uh, the order of the day. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't working for me. I busted ride after ride. I was trying to... uh, use everybody's suggestions. And that just made me mechanical. Mm-hmm. And I got all the way to an elimination, right? I was to fly with the squadron commander the next day. And he called me into his office and said, Brian, I just need you to sit down and relax and not get so worked up over this. I know you've been trying to use everybody's technique, but your own. He said, you, you got here with some skill and use that tomorrow. Now, you do have to pass this ride or you're going to lose uh, the program, but mm. just go out tomorrow and kick my ass. So I actually uh, took that to heart and got a good night's sleep for the first time in weeks and went out the next morning and had my way with him. All right. um, he might have gave me a break here or there. <laughs> but uh, it was a tough uh, mission. On the way back during the RTB, he called ahead to the squadron and uh Half the squadron guys came out, and uh, when I pulled into the chalks, they pulled me out of the airplane and down the ladder, and <laughs> they were all yelling, hey, Lazarus, you're back from the dead. So <laughs> Lazarus became my call sign, and then it got shortened to Laz, and all right. eventually became Lazmo. Lazmo. All right. <laughs> <Now> that's me.
0: <laughs> you know, what? it's funny, because as I've had this podcast going for years, and you people think fighter pilots always have it together and they're good at everything. And certainly there are some who are, but there's a lot of them like you, it sounds like, and certainly like me who struggle with certain things, whether it's BFM. Uh, if you had been in the Navy, you might've instead struggled with landing on the carrier and different things. And I think it's a testament to your persistence and just your character that you said, you know what, I'm going to just keep going. I'll let them kick me out, but I'm not going to (laughs) quit. And that's really what it comes down to is So your tenacity, I think, might have been the word I was looking for. So, all right. Well, Lasmo, thanks very much for coming on the show today. It's been really fun. Any parting shots before we go?
1: No, I'm pretty good. It was an honor to have been in that program and uh, seen some things uh, in the black world that uh, very few people get to see. It was quite an experience.
0: Oh, no doubt. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks very much. All right. All right. Once again, thank you very much, Brian McCoy, for taking the time today to come on the show. thought that was an awesome interview. And we have about another 20 minutes of content with Brian that is available to our listeners on Patreon. So if you want to head over to patreon.com, look for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and you can gain access to that exclusive content as well as help support the show. So both Any initial thoughts? I mean, it's just, wow, learned so much and uh, really ties in nicely with our F-117 episode. Everybody's sharing the space up there in Tonopah, but thought that was a great interview.
3: Oh yeah, no, it was fantastic. One of the uh, favorite buzzwords that I took away from it was uh, big sponge. You kind of started that with that one early on the uh, collection Mm -hmm. platforms. And then the uh, know your enemy concept of exploitation or just general warfare is, I think, a huge part of that entire program. And then obviously- as an aggressor was a big part of what we were trying to impart on the people that we were teaching was uh, here's what they can do, here's what they try to do, uh, and here's uh, you know how your tactics are or are not effective against that based on uh, their choices real time. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was a great interview. I loved it.
0: Well, speaking of that, because I believe you said you were an aggressor. So in the Navy and Marine Corps, for example, we have a squadron up in Fallon. We have another squadron in uh, Key West. We have a Marine squadron down in Yuma. Yeah. So I kind of think of them as disparate. But the way he made it sound was like there was kind of one aggressor unit, maybe, I guess, there in in Nellis. Was I just misinterpreting what he was saying, or how does that work for the Air Force?
3: So at least now, and going back to that, period of time during the Cold War, 80s, 70s, that era, it might have been a little bit different. But at least for right now, there are two aggressor squadrons in the Air Force that are aptly named as aggressor squadrons, meaning you know they fly camouflaged painted aircraft and their entire job and purpose is to be an adversary representative threat for blue forces or the good guys, if you want to call them that. So there's one at Nellis. And I think they're actually going to be re-standing up the 65th Aggressor Squadron with F-35 aircraft, but currently they only have F-16 adversary aircraft. And then there's a, a squadron that I was in up at Eielson Air Force Base in Alaska, which has F-16 aircraft. Back in the 70s and 80s, they did have um, F-5 adversary aircraft that were stationed around kind of the world for easy access. They didn't have to move airplanes from one place to another, and you could have people fly in and, and fight against them. But right now they just have the two squadrons that run the adversary program. And over top of the aggressor or adversary role is the tactics group down at Nellis. It's based in Nellis. And so each of those two squadrons works together to come up with a common set of standards to work from. Mm-hmm. And that's what then goes into our uh, threat manuals that the blue forces around the world use to better train against what they would see in real war.
0: That makes sense. And I think it's similar for us. We have uh, now Nautic that is, as I understand it, the adversary lead and provides those guidelines. Like you said, it's, it's what we base our understanding on what we think threats will do. So we'll make sure we all replicate it the same way.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay. And what about that departure and barricade? I've never heard of anything like that. Is that common at Air Force Airfield's uh, boat or those elsewhere? Or was that just there at Tonopah, do you think?
3: I think that's just kind of All over the place in terms of whether they do or don't have them, it depends on if they have the ability to have a cable strung. Obviously, the uh, Air Force aircraft only have the tail hook for emergency use. So um, if they don't have one of those, then it's probably actually cheaper to have a barricade that they hit a button up in the tower when somebody says barrier, 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 and this thing snaps up and catches airplane. (laughs) So it's uh, very rudimentary, but it's a lot cheaper than a whole cable system.
0: Yeah. Well, and cheaper than losing an aircraft and a crew, too. So, definitely. yeah, definitely. okay. Yeah, I just I'd, I'd never heard of that for whatever reason, and that's what's fun about hosting this podcast is I learn something every episode. So.
3: Ah, uh, yo, yeah, for sure.
0: Okay, and then the book that Brian was talking about and before the interview, but you said you read it is called America's Secret MiG Squadron. The Red Eagles of Project Constant Peg, and we will make that available on our shop page on our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. Am I right? Is that one of the two that you said you read?
3: Yeah, there's that one. And then there's the other uh, one that's written by Steve Davies a little bit before that called Red Eagles, America's Secret Migs. And as a quick book report comparison, essentially, one is more of a chronological uh, layout. And another one is more of an interview person by person layout. So oh. each of them has its own different flares, if you will, but they're both great. And they're both a-, a wealth of information. Definitely go check them out. Okay.
0: Well, in that case, we can add the other one as well for folks who are interested. doesn't cost you anything extra to buy them on our shop page. It's just like getting them from Amazon, except we get a little affiliate revenue, which helps keep the show going. So we appreciate that. Again, regarding possible current programs, honestly, at least I, in my civilian capacity now, don't know anything more than the rest of you listeners for what you see in the media. But one thing that occurred to me later... But you're probably aware of this. Is like, for example, when Wang Chung, our former guest, came back to co-host our MIG 29 episode, he talked about having the opportunity to go to Malaysia in his F-18D squadron in the Marines and fight with the MIG 29s there. I know we've sent jets in the past to cope India, and remember when the Iron Curtain fell, the Germans had MIG 29s and they came and did a a road tour with those fulcrums. So I think a lot of this is just the ability to get to different events and. Essentially, fight with uh, folks that are flying these things, and there's a lot of opportunity. Sounds like.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, you go to any air show that has airplanes, and you're going to see all kinds of different things. So that's obviously one place and one avenue of kind of viewing what's out there. But then, yeah, like you said, TDYs or or, uh, bringing airplanes into your unit or going to see them at theirs or major exercises like Red Flags, those airplanes are all over the place, and it's a really good chance to get to see what they can actually do. Even if it's not specifically designed for you to, to fight them, you can at least do the coordination and and work with their pilots to figure out how they operate.
0: Very cool. All right. Well, that will do it then for the interview segment, and we can transition into the wrap up. As always, we'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters, Strike Lead Ben Main and Mission Commander Christopher Hiller. As a reminder, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest, and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. The images affiliated with this episode are provided by the 10% True YouTube channel. Go over and check those guys out. And let's see, we'll see you all back here for f 15 month coming up in March. Boat, as always, thanks for coming back and helping out with the show.
3: Yeah, thanks for letting me come back.
0: All right, sure thing. Well, we'll catch you around. And for the rest of you, before you go, here's a quick reminder from our Wings Over America Scholarship Foundation friends. And we'll see you next time.
2: Hey, don't forget, we have a great event coming up, Weekend for Wings, this February 28th 2020 and February 29, 2020, and it's a golf tournament and concert and auction. It's a great chance for us to fundraise for Navy aviation families for their scholarships. So please sign up at wfw2020.givesmart.com, or for more information, look on wingsoveramerica.us. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, Follow and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening.